0: Hi, this is Delegate Eric Lutke, Majority Leader in the Maryland House of Delegates, and you're listening to the Maryland Association of Counties Conduit Street Podcast, one of the best sources of political and policy news in the state of Maryland.
1: Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we have a great episode today. I think it's very timely. First of all, how are you? How are things going on your end?
0: Everything's good here. Glad to be back in the saddle. Uh, Recording remotely is fine under the circumstances, but yeah, I'm pretty fired up about today's guest. I feel like we have tried to steer the content for the podcast on topics that are important and timely and interesting, and I think we sort of have like a triple qualifier here, where we're into the the start of early voting. We've already had conversations about this year's election and the timing and the administration and so forth. And election stuff, like we agree, and I think our listeners agree, is interesting. It's fundamental to our democracy. It's one of the things that the county governments are entrusted with here in Maryland and most of America. So this is important, fundamental stuff. And we've got a terrific guest to walk us through some nuts and bolts on this.
1: Yes, so we have with us David Levine today. We're going to talk through election administration, cybersecurity, voter access, harassment, and threats against election workers, and more. I should say David is the Elections Integrity Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, where he assesses vulnerabilities in electoral infrastructure, administration, and policies. David is also an advisory committee member for the Global Cyber Alliance's cybersecurity toolkit for elections, an advisory council member for the Election Reformers Network, a member of the Election Verification Network, and a contributor to the Fulcrum. And he previously, and Michael, you'll appreciate this, he worked as the Ada County, Idaho Elections Director, where he managed the administration of all federal, state, county, and local district elections. So, David, we, we did some back and forth on Twitter about the processing of mail-in ballots. We've talked about that on the podcast. I'll put some links in our show notes. But to me, it's more than just an administrative issue. And I, I'd like to hear your perspective, not only on the admin issue, but also the consequences of delayed election results, because it's more than just Kevin has to wait a few days to find out the winners of my local primary election, right?
2: Yeah, I, No, I appreciate your getting at that, um, you know, Kevin. I mean, I think that's a, a really good point. I mean, I, you know, let me just briefly touch on, on some of the administrative stuff before going to, to the consequences. I mean, when, when voters cast a ballot, right, their act of voting is generally over, right? They, um, you know, they rightfully expect when they put a ballot in a mailbox, they slide into a tabular at the polls that it will be counted. Um, but for election officials, having been one before, receiving the ballot is only one step, right, in that long list of tasks to make sure that that vote is accurately counted and reported. And so, you know, whether a ballot is in an envelope or not fundamentally changes, of course, how election officials handle them. Um, and so, you know, when ballots are cast in envelopes, whether by mail or dropped off in elections office or cast, you know, um, even in a drop box, I think what's what's really important to know is that there are some additional steps that go on. First and foremost is that the eligibility of the voter who's casting the ballot must be verified. Um, the ballot's got to be separated from identifying information and sorted so that it can be counted in the correct precinct or the ballot style. Um, and of course, unlike in-person ballots, ballots in, returned in envelopes are most, most often processed centrally at a particular location rather than a polling place. And so you know, there are a series of steps that make it so the processing mail ballots takes more time. And and I think that we've begun to see uh, greater interest from the public um, in that process, right, particularly during the 2020 election and in its aftermath. But when we talk about the consequences, right, for, for delayed election results, I mean, there are a few different ways to go on this. The glib answer for that is January 6th. Right. As we learned when Cassidy Hutchinson, right, an aide to Mark Meadows, gave profound, stark testimony to the January 6th committee that put former President Donald Trump at the center of that day's chaos and violence. Um, But there are other problems, of course, as well. Uh, You know, one, of course, is that bad faith actors, whether they're foreign adversaries, cyber criminals or domestic actors, can exploit that time required to certify and announce election results. By disseminating disinformation, disinformation about voter suppression, or cyber attacks targeting election infrastructure, or maybe voter fraud, or other issues, any of which are done to try and convince the public of an election's illegitimacy, you know, as we also saw in 2020, even in the aftermath, we're not just talking about an issue of confidence; we're also talking about people's lives. Um, and you know, one of the things that we, of course, have seen is that election officials have been the target of Death threats, uh, violence, harassment, and abuse stemming from delays in the counting of ballots. And so this issue has a profound impact not only on the administration of elections, but on the confidence in elections, as well as the health and lives of those who are involved in administering.
1: It's a great point because with the stuff that's going on, the threats and harassment against election officials, which is abhorrent, and, and we will talk about that. But, but also, I think it's, it's interesting when you talk about that, that, that lag, right, that, that does produce time for malignant actors to go ahead and, and maybe try to spread a misinformation or launch some sort of cyber attack. But this, this issue, it's frustrating for me because in Maryland, we've done a great job of making it easier to vote but we haven't updated those outdated laws on the back end to avoid these kind of issues. So I I think there'll be a fix here in Maryland. But, you know, I I put a tweet out the other day, Maryland is the only state that expressly prohibits uh, local boards of elections from starting to process ballots before the polls close on Election Day. Um, The General Assembly did pass a bill, it was vetoed for other reasons. But it is frustrating that we're going to put our local election officials in this spot and that they're already dealing with so much, right? I mean, they're dealing with the threats and harassment. They're dealing with supply chain issues. They can't get election judges. So this is really the last thing they need to worry about. And so from a policy perspective and, and for someone who works closely with these folks, and you do too, it's gotta be frustrating on your end to hear about something like this going on in any state.
2: No, it, it, it's tremendously frustrating. And you know what you speak about there, Kevin, not only of course is an issue in Maryland, but but nationally, You know, we, we've seen over the past, several years if not longer there's been as you alluded to expanded access to the ballot and convenience which is important right but what we we haven't seen is we haven't seen um uh corresponding policies that enable right election administrators to uh expeditely or expeditiously excuse me right process those ballots in a timely manner and so to your point if you don't have laws to account for the added convenience and you don't have the resources to expedite the counting of ballots then you have these delayed results. And we saw it in 2020 and we're, we're apt to see it um, in 2022, not just in Maryland, but elsewhere. I mean, Maryland at least is, is probably in some respects a little fortunate that it's not a battleground state. Think about a state like Pennsylvania, uh, where in 2020, right, you, you had a situation where the former president baselessly asserted that the, that the vote was rigged, um, uh, in part due to the, to the delayed counting of mail ballots. And of course, that led to threats against election officials, including, of course, um, former Republican Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt, who testified before the January 6th committee. And then, you know, fast forward two years later to Pennsylvania's 2022 primary election. And it's literally a rerun, right? Pennsylvania had not, again, adopted pre-processing or pre-canvassing of mail ballots. Now, at least they're a little better than Maryland because they can begin doing it the morning of election day, but that's still not enough time. And so again, you had a scenario where Pennsylvania election officials were put in a spot. And so again, you had a situation where, right, ballots were counted um, on election day, but then had to be counted a series of days after, You know, again, Pennsylvania election officials had to brace themselves for the possibility of additional threats in response to that behavior. And so this is very much a real thing. And something that I think election officials in any place that doesn't allow for pre-processing of mail ballots ahead of time need to be wary of. Um, And so, you know, an increasing number of states are doing this, but there continue to be states, including Maryland, Pennsylvania and others um, that have not. And that's really
0: unfortunate. I want to put a finer point on one particular piece of, of that discussion, David, and, and that is, because I think it's easy for someone who's not really immersed in election policy and administration to, to sort of lose sight of this one point. And that is, we've got laws here in Maryland, and I'm sure most states more or less have had laws along these lines that were written for an environment where the ballot inside an envelope was an anomaly, right? For for decades, we had absentee voting for cause. I'm going to be out of the state, or I'm on military deployment, I need to vote absentee. But that was, I don't know what, one, of two the, percent of the voting population would vote absentee, something like that. So the processing of a small number of ballots, sort of what we think of as late in the process, isn't that big of an administrative nightmare. But in these last two elections, in 2020 and this year in 2022, Maryland has sent an application to every voter, every registered voter, if you want to vote by mail, you can do it just here's exactly how, go to this website or fill out this form. And I mean, Kevin, you probably can can drop these numbers here, but like the number of ballots that have been sent out to Maryland voters for this election is in the hundreds of thousands. We're not talking about a trickle. It's going to be a wave, a big wave, right?
1: It's going to be over probably half a million. So I agree, Michael. I mean, these laws are outdated. Like you said, things have changed. And we talk a lot about government struggling to keep up with changing technology. I think, again, this is another example of that. The government has kept up in one respect by, again, making it easier for the voter, but not on the back end. And that's, that's what's troubling. And that's what has a lot of our local election folks worried about their ability to get these results out in a timely way. And again, I think most people are used to, and David, uh, most people are used to, to getting the results on election night, maybe the next morning if something's really close. But I, I guess, David, in your mind, why are states resisting? Uh, it's not just Maryland. I mean, Maryland passed the law, but why? Why is it that people are so hesitant to do this? Is it because it it just comes off as well something must be going on if you're starting to process these ballots early? Is it is it that they don't want people to to maybe feel that distrust, even though it's not justified?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a very good question, Kevin and Michael. To your point, I mean, just to go back to a point you made, you're absolutely right about the absentee piece. I mean. In 2020, we had a record about 46 percent of voters nationwide cast mail ballots in the election, and and while the pandemic may not be as uh, as much of a public health force today as it was then, right? That le- the election and the success that, that that there was administering that election should put folks on notice that this is a this is a thing, right? And that we ought to be um, preparing for that possibility and. And you know, I mean, Kevin. To your point, I, I think there are a few things that are that are at play here. I, I think number one, um, there are some people, there are some folks that haven't um, that don't necessarily understand the checks and balances that are in place when you talk about being able to pre-canvas uh, ballots ahead of election day. When I say pre-canvas, right? I mean getting mail ballots or getting ballots from drop boxes. And in most cases, just setting them up so that you can tabulate them beginning on election day.
1: Right. So Uh, not even tabulating, just getting everything ready so that you can put them through the scanner.
2: And and right. That's exactly right. And in some cases, I think people aren't aware of what that process entails and, and the time that it takes. Right. But whether that means, again, receiving the envelope, making sure the information on is correct. Right. Pulling out the ballot, separating it from the envelope in many states, though not Maryland, verifying a signature, and then, of course, making sure the ballots are flat and able to be subsequently scanned. So, I, you know, I think one is there's a lack of, you know, understanding about the process, and, and, and I think a concern about some of the, the, right, the safeguards, and, and you know, what's interesting, of course, is that um, you know, th- this isn't necessarily a political issue. I mean, there are states like Ohio and Florida that have done this kind of thing, pre-canvassing of mail ballots for quite, you know, quite a long period of time, and it's very easy to either allow for the process to be observed and or to have cameras so that people can watch this process take place in the days leading up to an election. You know, I will be fair to the governor in, in, you know, in in that when he vetoed that bill, he alluded to the fact that he wanted to have some signature verification requirements that were part of it. And of course, signature verification requirements are something that is amongst the most common ways to verify mail ballots across the country. On the other hand, um, there aren't any issues that I'm aware of at any kind of big scale that requires such a solution that the governor called for there. And so, you know, that's part of the reason I was disappointed by that veto. Um, But, I mean, to your point, I I think it's a matter of, one, people aren't, um, you know, aware of what exactly the process entails. Two, they aren't aware of the potential consequences, which, frankly, from where I sit, is heartbreaking.
0: We, we know that there are folks who, who want to maybe sow discord or distrust in the election process. And, and separate from things we've seen in the past or the, you know, that make headlines and so forth at the national level, um, I'm interested in, like, how, what should we be thinking about that as we try to conduct a fair and efficient and proper election this July and this coming November here in the counties in Maryland? Um, You know, what what should we be doing? What do we have to worry about on that front if there's bad faith actors who are going to use a window of opportunity to to make their case that something's fishy?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think there are a few different things that one can do, right? One is to make sure that you're continuously making your system's um, both as secure and as as accessible as possible. I mean, you know, we've, of course, have spoken a lot about mail ballots thus far. And of course, you know, one of the things that 39 states, including, right, Maryland and Washington, D.C. have is that capacity to track mail ballots, right? Mail ballot tracking. And, you know, that's a good way for um, allowing a voter to confirm that their ballot was received and, and processed, that and it can help combat uncertainty and increase voter confidence. And I think it's really important that, you know, voters are aware of, of those sorts of tools so that they can, you know, they don't just have to trust, right. What an election administrator says they can of course verify it for themselves. So I, I you know, I think that's you know one piece of this that I think is, is, is really important. Another piece that I think is, is, is really important in terms of as we look for, you know, having, uh, strong elections whether it's here in Maryland or elsewhere is to try and make sure that we do everything that we can to protect our election officials and workers particularly right those proficient ones who are experienced you know one of the things that we've seen particularly since 2020 is we've seen an unprecedented exodus of election officials in response to threats harassment and abuse that arose from misinformation disinformation out of the 2020 election, right? You know, scurrilous sort of remarks about the 2020 election being stolen or rigged. And one of the things that is concerning to me is that if experienced election officials or workers leave, then in a best case scenario, many times, you will get less experienced, well-meaning, but less experienced people to come in. And if that happens, then those people are more likely to potentially make mistakes that of course people could use to sow more chaos in the system or in a worst case scenario, right. Those who leave will be replaced by bad faith actors. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm really um, I I think there needs to be a real effort and focus on how to ensure that our election officials and workers are supported as much as possible. That runs the gamut. That could mean providing, you know, money so that they have trainings on how to, you know, properly protect themselves and their buildings. That could involve trainings on how to make sure that their private information um, isn't potentially as accessible to the public online and that they're less likely to be doxed. That could include right closer partnerships with law enforcement. Protecting um, the people that serve on the front lines is really, really important. And then I think the third thing that I think is, is important as well is being able to proactively talk about as much as possible and in as many ways as possible, right? How, in fact, our elections are conducted because clearly one of the takeaways from 2020 is few people um, know how, in fact, they're administered. And we need to see greater collaboration and partnerships between election officials and external entities, whether it's academics, government, and private sector folks so that more people are aware of, in fact, how elections work so that disinformation is less likely to catch fire in quite the same way.
1: And David, I have two follow-ups there, because number one, I'm interested in, in your perspective of, of the role that social media plays and what happened in 2020. I mean, I think that you had so many different people from across the country sort of buy in to the idea that our elections are somehow rigged, somehow there, there's some shady stuff going on in the background, not the case. But I feel like that that, that really was driven by social media and, and people's ability to connect with other like-minded folks across the country. So I'm wondering, in your mind, was 2020. I mean, of course, there were other factors in play, but the ability to to sew that into people's minds and create so much doubt was remarkable. And then the second uh, you you talk about, uh, you know, educating people on the election process. And I know that one of the things you talk about a lot um, is the need for more nonpartisan election observers and to try and get people in the door so that they can go and tell their friends, hey, I, I watched this whole thing play out and I can tell you it was all above board.
2: But I mean, I think there are a couple of things, you know, on the social media piece, if we just back up, you know, I know that I think it was the Aspen Institute Commission on Information Disorder put out a report in November last year. And and they said, and I think it was blunt but true, right? We are in a crisis of trust and truth. Um, And and this problem extends beyond state-sponsored disinformation, health scams promoting, you know, miracle cures. It's rooted in sort of broader challenges facing our country, right? from increasing income inequality to decreasing levels of public trust institutions, to of course, right, the explosion of social media. And, you know, these challenges, right, combined are sort of fertile ground for the seeds of information disorder. And so, you know, I mean, the past decade, several years decade has been marked by this tremendous shift, right, in the fabric, social, cultural, political, and American life. And particularly as we move down to the third year, of the COVID-19 pandemic, you can see how the seams are sort of splitting apart, and the threats to communities and the livelihoods have moved from internet chat rooms to the ICU. And I think that we are clearly seeing our information ecosystem failing the public. You know, further being hurt by the absence or loss of trust in government entities, community institutions, and journalism. And that, combined with the growing number of bad faith actors, have led to real harms. You know, sometimes with really bad consequences, like with January sixth. And so, you know. I mean, I, I certainly think that, that, that social media has its, has its, you know, certainly shares in the blame, but is certainly just one piece of that. And I will say, you know, to, to your point about the, the nonpartisan observation piece, one of the best right, you know, panaceas perhaps, is to have more right eyes on the process. Um, and, and I think that means that, you know, we want to have more people learning about the process and serving as poll workers, presuming that they're good faith actors. Um, We want election officials to try and be as transparent as they can uh, about their processes so that people can both trust but also verify what, in fact, is going on with their elections. And we want um, people to be able to observe these processes. And so, you know, that paper that you alluded to um, was was me with a a colleague from the Carter Center, who, of course, does this kind of work worldwide, Um, but basically, right, taking a page from the playbook of democracies across the world. Um, And say, look, you know, um, America has been a place that has frankly relied on a sort of adversarial election observation system to help ensure trust. You know, in the past, if you could just, you know, if you had your Democrat and Republican that were observing what was going on in the polling place, right, um, they could cancel each other out and everything would be hunky-dory and good to go. In light of what we saw in 2020, we know that that's just not true, right? It just doesn't, that doesn't work. Um, and, we, we, you know, part of that is because partisan election observers really are primarily there to help ensure that, that their candidate or their political party, right, um, is not hurt by any of the administration in the election. But part of it also, as we've now seen and you are aware, is that um, the, the, the multitude of threats facing election officials and poll workers are so vast that having additional people, uh, good faith actors, watching what is going on, um, can help put eyes on the process. And if there are, you know, observers that try and interfere with the process, right, we can have nonpartisan observers that are watching who can report on that. You know, if there's somebody that tries to do something and a poll worker doesn't have a chance to see it because they're serving a voter, we have nonpartisan observers that may even be able to see what's going on. Nonpartisan observers are, are both about accountability as well as about increased transparency. And so your question about social media and Nonpartisan observation: two sides, right of the same coin. You know, the need for how to amplify, right, the good faith actors. Um, you know, and our trusted sources like our poll workers, like our election officials in most cases, and the ability to, of course, diminish, right, our bad faith actors, whether it's observers that are more interested in interfering with the election processes, um, or you know, um, purveyors of disinformation, right. Uh, who have large followings on social media.
0: So so that, that touches on a number of things that are thorny. I mean our our professionals and volunteers who are trying to conduct a proper election have to play a tough hand here. And and, and that, that seems to be just an increasing call in in today's environment more so than a decade or a political generation ago. I, one one piece of that and it's something that you've you've drifted into a couple of times that I want to get into is sort of the idea of the law providing protections for election administrators and we we took this issue up and brought it to our our state legislature this last session. We weren't able to get what we wanted across the finish line, but I still think this is a live issue. My take is sure, if you sign up for a public-facing role, that there is some public accountability that comes with that. If you're the director of parks and recreation and you end up not maintaining the parks and you and your staff don't do a good job. People get angry with you. They write letters to the editor. They come to the council meeting and they they call for your head, that sort of thing, you know, figuratively. That, um, you know, that's that's part of taking a somewhat public role. But some of our, our you know, professionals who take roles in public health, and in this case in administering our elections, are I think, suffering more than the reasonable share of slings and arrows for trying to do their work. And you've made some mention of this. We're trying to get something done through the state legislature. Do you have thoughts on that front about what the law, you know, the sense behind laws given protections that, hey, you know, you know, going after the election administrator ought to be a special level of crime um, as, as opposed to just, you know, shaking your fist at your neighbor about the apple tree? Once the behavior, you know, goes from the,
2: right, the verbal to the physical and goes from a criticism of somebody's work, right? To, to um, you know, a threat, right? Directed at them, you've clearly crossed over the line. And, and, you know, I mean, this issue is front and center. I mean, in July, 2021, the U.S. Department of Justice created a task force on threats against election workers, right? To lead a federal law enforcement response to threats to the election community and where appropriate, to criminally investigate and prosecute such threats, um, it's been a little slow, you know uh, in terms of getting off the ground, and uh, you know it's only been around for a year. but I think the fact that it even needs to be created in the first place speaks to the significance and severity of this problem. Um, but I think to your point, now Michael, I mean while there are federal laws on the books we can talk about that do protect voters but also election officials. There are limitations to, to, to what the feds can do to some extent. And, and so I do think there's certainly a place for state and local entities to come to the aid of election officials. Um, you know, I think there are a number of things that I think, you know, ought to be, you know, up for consideration that we've seen other states pursue um, you know, one of those things that I think is 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 really important that's worth noting is, you know, I think states ought to be considering the establishment of state-based threat task forces, right? Focused on responding to threats against election administrators and public officials more generally, right? Well, this, of course, to your point, and you began, I think, get at this isn't just something that you know election administrators are dealing with, but we've seen public health officials and others deal with this kind of thing too. And this was suggestion was made in a uh, in a piece. In lawfare, you know, a little while back, you know, by some election professionals and state-based threat task forces have the ability, I think, to be able to, um, you know, see the threat landscape in their particular state, um, bring together, right, some of the 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 the, you know the 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 resources they need to bring together, whether it's law enforcement, election officials, civil rights organizations, and try and come up with ideas on how to deal with this. But you know, in addition to that, right, you know, I think that. Exploring new legal mechanisms to ensure accountability and deter future misconduct ought to be on the table. Um, I think allowing election workers to potentially be part of state address confidentiality programs that traditionally or historically protect the home addresses of survivors of domestic violence or stalking is something that ought to potentially be on the table. And I, and I think that, you know, States ought to be also looking at funding public awareness campaigns to further humanize election officials and provide information about their work. I saw a really good video, I think it was several weeks ago, of, that Virginia did regarding its election officials. Um, and so, you know, I think um, it's really important um, that, you know, we, that, that states and localities look as holistically as possible on what they can do to try and make sure that they can protect their election officials, um, to, to not only ensure that these folks want to continue staying in the profession, but that they feel safe doing their job. Um, you know, I, I know firsthand that you know, in, in previous experiences I had, and I want to be clear, I never dealt with the, the same kinds of threats that many of my you know, I guess former colleagues right now are, are dealing with today. But I do know from firsthand experience that when one feels stressed or more anxious or worried, right, the likelihood of making mistakes goes up. And, and so you can only imagine for those folks that are now dealing with the violent threats, what that, what that may mean. So if election officials need security systems um, at their office or at their home, that ought to be part of the consideration. Um, if there's a tangible threat that requires, if necessary, right, a, a habitual or periodic police presence, that ought to be on the table. Um, you know I, I think it's important to, to, to reach out to election officials, get their sense of what the threats are, and then make sure. Um, that they feel safe enough to do their job so that they can continue to do them well.
1: Yeah, really good points there. And I think all those things should be considered. I also want to get in, David, you know, you you do a lot of work with election security generally. Um, Cybersecurity continues to be a big concern. We all heard about Russia. Russia seemed to be directly meddling in our elections. And for me, it, it keeps me up at night. I'm sure it keeps you up at night because Elections, just like everything else in government, the bad guys only have to get lucky once, right? State and local boards of elections have to fend off these attacks from domestic and foreign hackers every single day, thousands of times a day. So I know there are a lot of partnerships going on at the federal level, agencies coming together, working together, sharing information. What are the latest efforts to secure our elections from outside interference, whether it's from Russia or from the guy down the street in his basement?
2: We know that, you know, we've talked a lot about um you know, some of the domestic adversaries, but as you correctly pointed out, right, foreign adversaries continue to be part of the threat landscape. I know that the, you know, the 2022 annual threat assessment of the U.S. intelligence community concluded that Russia still views U.S. elections as opportunities for malign finance, part of its sort of larger foreign policy strategy. And so, you know, I think we're seeing a number of efforts being undertaken by election officials and their partners to further bolster and secure their systems. Um, you know, One of the things I touched on at the beginning, but you know, it's worth sort of coming back to, is that we're seeing even more jurisdictions that are moving away from paperless voting systems and going to paper-based voting systems, right? Uh, when I say paper-based voting systems, I mean either right, hand-marked paper ballots or at least a system that uh, generates a paper ballot. Right, either of which provides right an actual sort of manual artifact that can subsequently be audited or recounted. You know, I think that 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 matters. Right. The second thing that we're seeing is we're seeing an increasing number of jurisdictions that are, of course, you know, not only are they, of course, going to the paper based system, but they're then also mandating the post election audit themselves. It's you know one thing to have the piece of paper; it's another thing to actually do the audit. And and the reason why that's so important, right, Kevin, to your point, how it ties into cybersecurity is that. If there were, in the remote possibility, still a possibility, that there was to be a breach of a jurisdiction's voting system, right? If you have paper ballots and you have strong chain of custody protocols, meaning you've got processes that ensure that paper ballots are being securely handled from when they're voted to when they're about to be tabulated, and then you have a process to manually review some of them to ensure that they're being tabulated correctly, then if the system has actually been breached by a foreign adversary, or even if there was a technical problem with your voting system, you'd still be okay, right? So the fact that we see more jurisdictions going to paper ballots, the fact that we see more jurisdictions doing post-election audits, which again means manually counting a portion of their paper ballots to make sure that right, the voting systems work as they should, right? those things both bode well. And then, and I touched on this before, we're seeing jurisdictions um, enact stronger chain of custody protocols. Uh, You know, one of the things that came out of 2020 was that there were a number of places that engaged in, I won't call them audits. I'll call them reviews, inferior reviews of the 2020 election. right. There was one that took place, for example, in Maricopa County, Arizona. There's an ongoing one that's going on in Wisconsin, um, and when I the reason I say that they're inferior is because these are not these are reviews of the election results that are not in line um, with best practices from election officials. and you know um, one of the the problems, for example with the with the Arizona one is that you had a vendor, a bad faith vendor that was overseeing that process um, and there were not stringent chain of custody protocols to ensure that the that that vendor right, was doing everything above board, um, which raised real concerns about what would come out of that review. And so you've now seen the U.S. Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, and others come out with guidance on how to make sure that once ballots are cast by voters, that they are successfully secured until they are subsequently tabulated. And I think that really matters because if you have paper ballots that are successfully secured and then reviewed after they've been tabulated, you're likely to be able to withstand most, right? uh, Most Mm. attacks um, from foreign or domestic actors. There's also some, you know, other efforts that are afoot. Um, We know that the state department, for example, recently announced that it's offering up to $10 million to those who provide information on foreign interference in U.S. elections. We know that the national security council and cyber commands election security team, recently reestablished election security team to try and defend against and disrupt foreign interference efforts. Um, And we know that, you know, that there are resources being put out by entities like um, the Department of Justice, DHS, and the Election Assistance Commission to try and support election officials, you know, during these challenging times. So those are some things that I think election officials are doing to try and harden um, you know, their infrastructure and their process as much as possible ahead of ahead of the
1: midterms. So, I mean, so there are folks working to prevent these kind of attacks. But the, the best way what you're saying, I think, is the best way for local election officials to you know, prevent any kind of, of issue where they're not able to get an accurate depiction of how the election played out is essentially to keep the receipts. You got to make sure that you keep everything and you got to make sure that the chain of custody is transparent and that it is proper so that everybody on the outside can also see. And I think that also ties in, David, to, you know, people are able to watch that process play out. I think yeah. COVID, COVID forced a lot of local boards to put cameras in, right, because you couldn't bring people in there to watch. So it was it was streamed online. I think stuff like that is a really good way to, to, to address a lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now
2: no I, that's absolutely right right transparency plus communications gets gets you right trust and so i I think it's really important um, that, that 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 combination continues uh, to be utilized by by election officials you know moving forward and, and, and of course right those two things go hand in hand of course we touched on this a little earlier with making sure that you you are you know continuously putting in processes and utilizing technologies that can help ensure that your elections are as resilient as possible, right? That's where the, you know, having, um, you know, robust audits that you can do before you certify the results is, is, is really important um, because, you know, it provides a mechanism for those who have questions, right, to be able to see for themselves, you know, these results are accurate. And if, in fact, the audit discovers that there's a discrepancy, well, then now we know, and now we have, now we can go about trying to fix it.
1: One of the other things I think is interesting, David, um, You know, we we talk about, again, new technology driving new policy. Sometimes governments are are slow to to implement new ideas. With elections, we've done a good job of making it easier to vote, but we also have to protect the integrity of our elections, obviously. Mail-in voting is catching on, it's working well, but we also see some states starting to push legislation to implement online voting and stuff like that. Are we ready for that? And and where's the sweet spot in your mind? In my mind, I'm not sure that our infrastructure is prepared to, to properly carry out online voting, true online voting, without interference and without at least a lot of people thinking there has to be interference. So is that something that could happen, David, down the line? And, and how long out is something like that from actually being a reality where you could just go on your phone, maybe on an app, submit your ballot, and you're done, making it easier for people? But will that also then you know, just, just do more mistrust and also be vulnerable to, to these outside actors who are trying to uh, interfere with our elections.
2: Kevin, I'm glad you raised that. I mean, I think it's important to try and make elections as accessible as possible without compromising security, and to try and make elections as secure as possible without compromising access, right? And and clearly online voting touches on that that former one. And, you know, to your point, I think online voting, because of its its potential, right, deserves ongoing evaluation, but I also think, that it's not yet ready for primetime, right? I mean, in, in 2020, the FBI um, Election Assistance Commission, the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, all of these entities issued a joint statement which said, right, that the digital return of a voted ballot by the voter creates significant security risks to the confidentiality of ballot and voter data, right? Um, there are concerns about voter privacy. There are concerns about ballot secrecy. Um, and if election officials choose or are ma- mandated by state law to, to do this process, you know, they said that its use should be limited to voters who have no other means to return their ballot and have it counted. And, and I'm not aware of any developments regarding online voting, to your point, that weren't going, going beyond this, that weren't right, you know, a change in tact. Um, You know, since that statement, Um, you know, I I mean, Rhode Island recently adopted sort of online voting. And there are other places that have looked at this. And, you know, I I think it's something, again, that's worth continuing to look at. But, you know, what we've what we've seen is are that there are plenty of ways um, to ensure and help expand access to the ballot before you even get to the online voting consideration. You know, we now see an increasing number of places that offer early in-person voting. Um, We now are seeing more and more places until I guess recently with a couple exceptions that are allowing for, you know, voters to be able to request a mail ballot, even if they don't have an excuse. And we've seen a number um, of States with a couple exceptions that are, are are putting in place drop boxes that allow people to potentially write, who have requested a mail ballot to drop them in. And so, um, you know, I I think um, there are, a number of things out there to help ensure access um, and that we aren't yet there with regards to to security you know i think until until we see you know research and breakthroughs to the contrary um, you know i think we ought to hold tight and continue uh, to push and promote and support um, the trusted and true methods we have for voting safely and securely
0: well that, that that's really well said i we i feel like We've covered a, a fair amount of ground in this area. Um, I do know that our loyal listeners sometimes get back to us with the, uh, you know, like, no, we want the weeds. We want to go deep. We want to go further. So um, if, if folks have been listening and they're interested in this stuff, but they want more, where should they go digging to find stuff that you're writing, that you're talking about elsewhere?
2: You know, obviously, you know, as you guys mentioned the ads that I'm, you know, I'm with the um, you know, Alliance for Securing Democracy. If people want to you know, type in that name and, and uh, type in the name of the organization, um, put in David Levine. They'll obviously be able to bring up you know some of the materials that I've I've written about. Um, you know, but I think it's again, it's worth noting that you know, you know there are a number of right entities that are doing some really good work along these lines. Um, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission is a federal clearinghouse that provides. Um, and shares a lot of best practices on some of the things we've spoken about. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, um, provides a lot of best practices, particularly from an election security perspective. And of course, um, in many cases, your state and local election officials, um, you know, not only have their own resources, but have uh, links and access to other materials that can help shed light um, on how, in fact, uh, elections are conducted where you are. Um, you know, obviously for anyone who's listening that has questions, they can feel free to reach out to me at D. Levine, that's L-E-V-I-N-E, at securingdemocracy.org. Um, you know, but I, I encourage folks, uh, you know, as they as, as they sort of, you know, go forward on these things to to reach out to trusted sources. And, you know, whether that's your, your state or local election official um, or um, it's to, you know, folks who are doing really good work, maybe in, in civil society, such as the League of Women Voters. Um, you know, or, or your, your local journalist that's that's covering these issues on a, on a day-to-day basis. You know, I think there are a lot of people that are trying to uphold, right, American democracy during these challenging times. And um, I think folks, you know, ought to be trying to make sure that they're reaching out to those folks who are on the right sides of these issues and that they ought to be trying to, you know, be part of those ranks as well, uh, whether they're serving as a poll worker um, being as a being an election observer, or simply amplifying good information about the election process.
0: Terrific. Well, thanks for the leads. We can get a lot of that information into the show notes for the episode. But for folks who are listening and so forth, we appreciate the leads because there's a lot there.
2: You know, for those folks that you know, um, you know, still still attempting to vote, obviously in Maryland, your early voting. Uh, it was mentioned at the outset, of course, begins today, goes through the fourteenth. Um, obviously, uh, election day is, of course, on the on, on the nineteenth. And you know, I know that a lot of people, um, you know, think about voting, particularly sort of a, you know, I know I know around presidential election time. But um, you know, being able to vote uh, you know, in primaries and, and other elections, I think is, is is just as important. And so, you know, I would encourage as as, as many folks as possible to participate. Uh, you know, in my experience and in my research, I found that right high voter turnout is is one of the best ways to counter the efforts by uh, autocratic actors both foreign and domestic to try and right, interfere uh in democratic elections so so please please go out and vote if you haven't already done so
1: Thank you again so much, David, for joining us today. This is a wealth of information, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on and and get into some more of the weedier stuff here, but we really appreciate your time. And as always, for our listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, you can go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, our Conduit Street blog. As Michael mentioned, we will put all of the resources that David mentioned in the show notes. But for David Levine and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.